Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Future Projection Podcast. This is Carlos Galazzo, and as always, I'm joined by Ben Badler. Ben, what's going on, man? Doing good, Carlos. Doing good. Baseball is back. I'm going to games again, so it's it's uh, it's been a fun fun weekend. Got to see Joshua Baez, potential first round pick, um, last weekend, and then the later in the day went over to BC, saw Sal Fralick at Boston College playing Clemson, another potential. Well, he he probably be a top ten pick overall. So it was uh, it's been a good weekend. Yep, it is nice that that you are out and actually seeing games in person again. Uh, today, we also have another guest joining us for the first time, making his future projection podcast debut. That is JJ Cooper. JJ, thanks for joining us. How's it going on your end? I cannot complain. We've got opening day. We've got college baseball. I got my first shot of the Pfizer, you know, so put it all together. You're, you're not going to hear a whole lot of complaints from me right now. Feels a lot better than this time last year. I'll put it that way. Yes, absolutely. It definitely does. It was, it was about a year ago, around now, maybe even a week prior where things really started getting shut down. And it seems like this year is just a different level of optimism people are going into this year with, understandably so. But um, just a few housekeeping things at the top of the podcast. Um, we recently updated top 30s and updated our top 100 prior to opening day. We're recording this a day before opening day. Many of you guys might be listening to this on opening day. Uh, but if you want to see those movement, uh, those movers on either of those lists, definitely check it out on the website. It's up now uh, on the top 100 list. It's basically just a few injuries that have moved some players down. We didn't really react too crazily to spring training performance. Uh, and then on the top 30s, I feel like those are more substantial updates with the international players from this class being added uh, thanks to Ben's uh, in-depth work. Uh, ben, is there anything you want to mention? Or I guess either of you guys, since you're both very uh, – in, involved in this process, any points you want to mention for either of those movers or just the international guys being added? Ben, I'll let you go first. Yeah, we added the players who signed on January 15th, obviously an unusual year. Usually these kids will sign on July 2nd and they'll play in tricky league and then they'll play in Dominican instructional league. And you have a lot more information on them at that point. So obviously unusual this year with the signing period getting move back and MLB banning all in-person scouting for six months last year. So uh, different, probably a lower level of information that even clubs cl- clubs even have on their own players right now compared to what they normally would, but definitely some, some obvious guys like we've talked about Christian, Christian Hernandez with the Cubs, Carlos Coleman and with the Rays and, and some other pretty prominent players rank pretty highly in their organizations already, but there's some other, if you flip through the top 30s, you can see some pretty uh, pretty good sleepers or, or lesser known guys who I think have made more of a name for, for themselves over over the past year or so. And I think have really trended up that you'll probably hear a lot more from once the, once the season gets started. 
Yeah, it is nice just from my perspective doing the Braves list and not really having to deal with international prospects for the last few years. It's nice seeing international prospect there who's really exciting. So uh, yeah, we from- got Braves, we got we got Orioles in there. It's 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 a new mm-hmm. world, man. Yeah, it really is. JJ, any any thoughts from you on the hundred or, or the thirties update? I, I like Ben said, it is a little weird. Um, you know, traditionally we have those in the prospect handbook and. I don't know what we're, you know, we, we put them in as an appendix, you know, but then there's a lot more info, a lot more detail this year, weird year, but it is like 41 uh, international prospects, I believe added to the 30. So it's 41 out of 900 top 30 prospects. And, um, but also, you know, we did also have other moves and all. So there have been trades since we last updated uh, in January, there have been injuries. There have been, in a few cases, you know, we've had rule five picks who have really stood out, you know, and all that. So we did some tweaks. So it's, I would say that we, I mean, the, the good news about this is, is I really do feel like it is the most updated top thirties going into the season we've ever had up at baseballamerica.com because we have not normally done this kind of systematic look at all 30 top thirties um, for opening day of the major league season. I mean, the one thing I'll say with that, like you, like you said, Los, it's not that we're going to massively change orders based off of what they did in spring training. But Forrest Whitley blows out his arm. Well, we're going to change a little bit how we rank Forrest Whitley. Mm-hmm. So things like that are part of this. You think um, them being the most updated, like you said, that we've ever had entering opening day is, is a function of just it being a, a, new, a unique timing mechanism with the international side or just – updating how we're kind of going about getting the 30s ready before opening day, even after uh, kind of the prospect hand go- handbook goes and everything like that? Or would you say it's a combination? I'd say it's a combination of those two things and then throw in the third, which is no spring, no minor league season last year. So like we got all excited about Bobby Witt Jr. and CJ Abrams and Riley Green this spring training. I'd probably be a little less excited, a little less um, focused on it if they'd have had 400 at bats plus last year. But when you don't have that, all of a sudden 40 plate appearances from Bobby Witt Jr. becomes some of the most significant information that we've gotten basically of him as a pro, Mm -hmm. which I'm so ready to have that all put behind (laughs) us. But, you know, it's so it's all of those factors. Yeah, I feel like we've been talking about, man, I really want to see this guy in a full season for it feels like longer than a year at this point, but um, it'll be nice that we actually finally have some, some regularity here. Um, we aren't going to talk a ton about the major league game in this podcast, but because it's opening day, um, we at least need to, to have a nod to it. There will probably be better podcasts that you can listen to that can give you a full breakdown. But if you want to read all of our uh, major league preview, crystal ball, breakout picks, um, we have projected, not projected things, but predicted standings, um, from all the staffers at BA, that's on the website now. Uh, we have our Major League Preview out. I think by the time people are listening to this, they probably will be able to get their hands on it, or at least close. Um, but yeah, are you guys looking just to talk a little bit of opening day before we get into some of the other topics we're getting into on this podcast? Is there anything in particular that you guys are looking forward to with opening day? Um, for me, I'm honestly just excited to throw on baseball and watch a bunch of games and just make it seem or make it feel like life is normal again 
Um, I'm just watching even some of the teaser material that Emily is putting out on Twitter. Some of the, the hype up videos that they have on social media have me really excited for it. Um, I don't know if there's anything particular I'm looking forward to other than just baseball being on again and, and games that actually matter and actually um, are going to have an impact on, on postseasons and things like that. But um, I'll turn to you, Ben. Is there anything that you're excited for other than just opening day is good? Yeah, having having baseball back, I'll probably be out at a at a high school game again on on Thursday, uh, like late afternoon. But yeah, it, it'll be awesome. I, I do I do miss just having games on all day. So I'll probably have a game on before I I go out to the game in person. Come back, watch uh, watch another game on on watch an East Coast game. Stay up, watch a West Coast game, and then seeing some of these. See, it's exciting to see some of these young prospects too, like Andrew Vaughn making the opening day roster. I'm I'm pretty excited to see what some of these young players do right away and how they how they how they handle that transition, especially with very limited or unusual <laughs> uh, minor league development time since since the time they signed, or, or at least over the past year. Yep. How about you, JJ? Uh, this uh, maybe I get too interested in the baseballs. I think a lot of people don't, but this uh, Ben Lindbergh, uh, Bob Arthur story that came out, which I think is kind of as, as you put it, Losa, a yearly tradition. But if the ball actually is going to be even more home run happy, I hope it's. I don't think we need more of that. I mean, I, I don't. I love home runs, but I, I especially if this is the Triple A baseball. Also, I, I really for the sanity of pitchers in Reno and Salt Lake and all. I hope it's not more uh, crazily uh, flying out of ballparks, but I'm interested to see, you know, is that going to be something that, that kind of carries over, you know, and, and we're seeing the, you know, home runs aplenty again. You can go the crux of the story that it was, it was just going to be more, the ball seems like it's even more juiced up this year. Yeah, I was about to ask. Wasn't the whole the, wasn't their goal to to do the opposite? Yeah, but there's. It seems like it's a little less draggy right now. Um, and they didn't really measure drag. It seems like from the story potentially. Oh, so, gosh. I, I do think we have a real problem with the baseball right now, and they've been. Again, I'm not a scientist. I mean, there are, you know. Alan Nathan, um, you know, Meredith Willis and her dissection of baseballs. There are people who are more diving into this than, than my understanding. But I do know this. It's a handmade product. And when you look at cars, I know a little bit about car manufacturers. If you go back to like the 1905 and you said, I have a car, I have this model of a car, and someone else has the other, you know, similar one, you couldn't necessarily take a fender from that car and put it on the, uh, you know, my car if it broke because they were, every one of them was handmade. So they were all different. I kind of think like in 2021, maybe it's time to like have these be kind of machine made where it's like this baseball is very much the same as this baseball. Whereas right now it's like, Oh, I got a really lively ball. Oh, this one's not as lively. Oh, this one, you know, was wound tighter than that one. That, that seems a little illogical to me in 2021. I, I don't see the allure of that we have to continue to have handmade baseballs because that's what we did 
when we developed a baseball in 1875. I'm just excited that we got some early 1900s car manufacturing talk on this podcast. That's that's why you have you on, JJ. That's awesome. You I know, mean, I honestly still British am... motor from the from the you know there's British motor automobiles <laughs> from the 60s that you can say the same thing about. I would yeah. say you know if you want to go, we don't need to go that geeky, but mm-hmm. yes. Well, what honestly is kind of I'm honestly tired of hearing about the ball at this point. It it is interesting, and I, I think it's cool to see like how the ball is going to play and how that changes the offensive environment. But I feel like for the last three years, really, we've just been nonstop talking about the ball and the changes to the ball. And I really wish we could get it fixed and just have it be consistent. It seems like the last three years, it's been wildly inconsistent. And I don't know if that's just because people are really good at measuring now uh, and they're paying attention to it more or because it really is, has it always changed this much? I honestly wish we could just like get a constant and not have to deal with it anymore. I'm kind of over the, the baseball. Is it juiced? Is it not juiced stories? But I don't know. Maybe I'm just less interested in it than you, JJ. I'm totally naive to other sports, but it, like, are there other sports that have this issue, this pretty fundamental issue with their ball? I, I can't imagine like there are different basketballs <laughs> that, well, that the NBA uses. At least I don't know what the NBA does, but in college basketball, the balls are definitely different based on conference and even team to team, like the home team. Really? The home team is in charge of the basketballs. Well, I only know this because when I was at UNC, Marcus Page really liked the Wilson ball, I think. And they didn't use that at UNC, but they used it at state. And he had two really good games against North Carolina state. And he was like, yeah, I really just love this basketball. I guess the grip is different and it feels a little bit different. I don't know enough about this to, to talk I like as an expert, but I know at least in college four years ago, it's been longer than four years now, but at least in college a little bit ago, they, they use different balls based on like what the home team is. I would imagine it's more um, consistent in the NBA, but I don't know. JJ, you might know. I, I don't know about the NBA. I do know that there's been plenty of controversy with World Cup soccer. Um, the ba- the soccer ball has changed from World Cup to World Cup. I mean, it's only every four years. But like in 2002, it was thought to be too light. And I mean, I think it was called like a, like a kid's like rubber ball was how it played. The next time it was, some thought it was too heavy. You know, there's been times where it's like, it seems like it doesn't, you know, spin the way that they want it to off their foot. So this has actually like, it's not just unique to, uh, you know, to baseball. It, it does seem there's plenty of complaining about equipment. Yeah. And in the NFL, we, we definitely had like the deflate gate. That was a, an entire <laughs> thing. So it, it, I guess it's good maybe in a pessimistic way that other leagues are also dealing with it. It's not just a baseball only problem, but it does seem weird that it continues to be a problem. It does make a difference. To, like we, I, I go to the amateur showcase in in the Dominican Republic and in Latin America, and that's you have to look at what kind of baseballs they're using there, because there will be events where they will put on a showcase and they will use these. There's like a very specific type of of baseball. It's it's definitely not a major league baseball or or a minor league baseball that you see these kids taking batting practice or they use them in a game too. And these things absolutely fly. So if you're not paying close attention, you'll probably put a grade higher of raw power on a player 
than you would if, if you knew he was using normal baseball. Although now, again, when I say normal baseball, uh, like some of the trainers I talked to said, yeah, we actually bought, you know, we would use those baseballs that we know fly real far. But then we got a hold of some of these major league baseballs, and these things might go even might go even farther. So we're, we we might just keep <laughs> using these ones. Jeez. And then you can sell it as no, we're just using the major league baseball. You know, we're not trying to you know mess with this at all. We're just trying to be the most authentic we can be. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it does make it. Di- and then you see, like, it seems like there's like there's certain base, like they're using certain baseballs in the regular season and then maybe different ones in the postseason. And may- maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true. It's, it's also just hard to it's hard for me to just trust Major League Baseball and take them at their word for it. it do you guys know why there's not just one baseball that MLB uses throughout the minor leagues? Like, why do we not just have one baseball? Cost? Cost. Okay. Well, well two, that's two an things. unsurprising answer and also really disappointing at the same time. <laughs> but, but two things. I mean, again, because you got to remember, minor league teams pay part of the price of the baseballs. So, you know, it's not just, you know, MLB could pay for all of it, but it's a shared expense. But on top of that, remember when I went back to the whole handmade baseball thing? Yeah. You can't make if you go from making those, they made them for major leagues and then they ramped up to be able to do them for AAA. And back in 2019, when they did that, I talked to the people at Rongs and like, if major league baseball wanted to, we could have double A, we could ramp up enough. We could train enough, basically baseball sewers to be ready to go to double A in a year. They could add essentially a classification a year, but they don't have the ability to go from doing enough baseballs for 60 teams to have enough baseballs for 150 teams. Mm -hmm. They just can't do it with the homemade, with the handmade baseball. Now, again, this goes back to my standardization thing. If you actually manufactured the baseballs with machines, you could do that. But right now you can't. And so you have a a handmade baseball and then you have a more kind of mass market baseball used for, for double aim below. Do you think any of that would change with MLB taking more control over the minor leagues or are the issues still still the same i mean they also have a controlling interest in rollins so yeah. and it hadn't changed it with that so uh, it doesn't seem so at least as of yet i mean if that was the case you would think that well i mean one thing crazy thing we're looking at here let's say that the 2021 baseball major league slash triple a baseball is different in some ways from the 2020 right livelier less lively whatever it is and I don't fault them for this, but some AAA teams still have their entire ball order for 2020 that they never used, right? Other teams had their order come in and then shipped them back to the MLB club who used them for alt site, instructs, all that, right? So depending on what where you are, you could be pitching, you could be hitting a 2020 triple a baseball or you could be hitting or pitching a 2021 it just depends on kind of the situation of the team that you're with well now you're making me want to watch a how it's made uh baseball video i'm sure that's already out there but the goal was not to get more interested in in the baseball dilemma (laughs) so so thank you i'm sucking you in (laughs) no you really are one thing that I want to touch on, if you guys are if you guys are done with the baseball talk, and we can keep talking about this, if there's anything you guys want to add, but um, 
Chase Petty hit 102 miles per hour recently. Uh, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit because just number one, it's such a gaudy number to hit that it just catches your eye. And it's, I mean, the baseball Twitter was kind of freaking out about it when it happened. I think it was 101.8 um, on the Rapsodo. I call it 102. Yeah, it's 102. I mean, it's going to show up 102 on your radar gun. But Chase Petty, who currently ranks just outside of the uh, the top 30 on the the BA 300 draft list, um, is a New Jersey high school right-hander. He's kind of always been the guy in this class who's had the, the highest octane or the, the fastest fastball. And now he's kind of in the range where people are looking back to see which other high school pitchers have touched 102. And the track record of that, at least the recent guys who have touched 102, is not great. I think the last three high school players um, that we have that have for sure touched 102 is Hunter Green, Riley Pint, and Tyler Kolek. Um, That is not great company. Riley Green is still to be determined, I guess. But Riley Pint. Hunter Green. Or Hunter Green, excuse me, yeah, Hunter Green. You combined them into it. You, you combined them actually into a pretty good prospect, Riley Green. <laughs> yeah, Hunter Hunter <laughs> Green. Uh, but but no, those three, I feel like, and we've talked about this before. I know Kyle has talked about it plenty. Just the the risk of hard throwing high school players. But what do you what do you guys think when you hear of a a kid who's seventeen, eighteen years old hitting that kind of velocity initially? And just I feel like we could have a conversation about it because for me, it's like when I first see it, I'm really excited about it. I'm like, Oh, this is like, this is crazy. How on earth is this guy throwing that hard? And then I'm immediately like, is this even a good thing? Like I almost get a little bit scared just because of that track record. So I wanted to kind of throw it out to you guys and kind of pick your brains on, on, on petty specifically. And just guys that young throwing that hard. I think it's, it's, it's good when you throw hard. I think there's probably some, added risk certainly if you talk to clubs they, they do get a little bit anxious about guys throwing that hard as far as what it could mean for for them just holding up as far as their their durability but as, as far as the track record of those other players those high school players who touched 100 miles an hour in high school I, th- I think the issue with them was not so much that they threw hard as much as the rest of their game. Like Riley Pint really struggles to throw strikes. Tyler Kolick, uh, likewise, I think is an understatement and also I think struggles as far as his, his secondary stuff too. So ha- having a pitcher throw – 100 miles an hour at, at 17 or 18 years old in and of itself is, is not a bad thing. I, I think it's a, I think it's a good thing, but it where, where you can get in trouble is if you, if you just overvalue that raw velocity from a high school player, I want to, you know, if, <laughs> and, and, and obviously Kolick and, and and Riley Plant were picked at the the very very top of the draft, so I, I'd have to see something absolutely spectacular from from a high school pitcher uh, to take any high school pitcher that high in the draft. Certainly a lot more so than just um, outstanding raw velocity. So I, I think the issue with them was was more 
uh, you know, depending on each specific pitcher was either more the lack of secondary stuff or the lack of command, lack of control in their cases. So I, I certainly don't view Chase Petty being able to throw 100, 101, 102 as a, as a negative. I, I think it's a, a great thing for him. And we just, it, but at the same time, you don't want to just overvalue the raw velocity itself. You want to look at all the other components that you look for when you're, when you're evaluating a pitcher. JJ, I'll throw it to you. So, yeah, I, I, I've tried to do, you know, I've, I've been kind of in a UCL uh, elbow, you know, ulnar collateral ligament uh, kick lately, Tommy John surgery and all that. And I've been talking to a lot of people about, you know, a lot of orthopedists, uh, sports scientists, uh, biomechanists, all that. And sometimes I think this gets overly simplified, understandably, by fans. You know, anytime, anytime we comment, post, a, you know, retweet a video of any high school pitcher throwing hard, the immediate response that I always get from people is, well, you know, he's having his TJ next week. Which, yeah. by the way, let me just start with, I hope I never become that person. Um, you know, <laughs> Tommy John surgery is not fun. The rehab from it is not enjoyable. So, you know, again, I get it. Like, they're not looking at these people as human beings who, you know, <laughs> are, you know, when they essentially wish this on someone in many cases almost, it seems like. But, but okay, let's take that out of it. What we know what sports scientists, biomechanists, people who study this know, throwing harder puts more stress on your elbow. If you're a pitcher and you're throwing 90, you will put more stress on your elbow by throwing 98 than you did throwing 90. That is scientific, proven, I would call it fact. At the same time, it is not true that if, Carlos, if you throw 90 and I throw 98, and I do not throw 98, it does not mean that I'm putting either. more Just... stress on my elbow, but I am not putting more necessarily more stress on my elbow throwing 98 than you are throwing 90. Because some pitchers can throw 102, and they may be putting less valgus stress, that's what the term is, on their elbow ligament, than someone else throwing 88. So this blanket, it is absolutely true. The harder you throw, the more stress you put on your elbow. If Chase Petty went out there and said, I'm going to never throw harder than 88 today, he would put less stress on his elbow throwing 88 than he would at 102. But it is not true to say that Chase Petty throwing 102 absolutely positively is putting more stress on his elbow than some other high school pitcher we're looking at who throws 88. So that's a key part, number one. To follow up what Ben said, these guys that we're talking about, we're, we're talking about a very small sample size for one, you know, but there are others, obviously. I mean, we can look at, I remember there was a class, a uh, high school class coming up. We're like, look at all these hard throwers. Those are Riley Pine, I think, you know, Grant Holmes, there were a number of these guys. And there's not a great track record of those guys. It's not just these guys who throw 102. There is something it seems like where if you get too enamored with high school velocity, you, you got to have some other stuff with it because it's, that's not enough anymore. I mean, there was a time where if you threw a hundred 
and did nothing else, that would be sufficient. It's not anymore because there are guys who can turn around 100. But that's kind of what Ben said, though. I agree with it is, is that, but it's not a bad thing to be able to do that. Now, Chase Petty's not going to be one of the top five picks in the draft. When Tyler Kolek was coming out, Tyler Kolek's scouting report essentially was, hey, we have this high school guy and he throws 100. And every now and then he spins a good breaking ball. And that was sufficient to make you a top of the draft draft pick. That's not the case anymore. I mean, that's why when we say Chase Petty is looking, you know, it's kind of probably slotted more in that supplemental first round range. Why? Well, there's been an adjustment in the industry about that. But at the same time, it does give him, Tyler Kolek's problem was, is he got to full season, but, you know, he got to pro ball. And on a five-day schedule, I remember we go out and see him, and all of a sudden he's throwing 92-93. Well, the point of Tyler Kolek was he was throwing 100. If he's all of a sudden got an average fastball, you know, it, it was a, uh, a much less impressive uh, pitching package. Chase Petty also has a really good breaking ball to go with 101.9. So you put those two together, and he has an athletic, you know, he has an athleticism to him. I, I'm interested. Now, I, you know, I think that's right to have some skepticism, but high school pitchers in general earn skepticism these days. Um, but I do think that there's nothing about him throwing over 100 that means, oh, I would never draft him out of high school because he throws over 100. It just means where I would probably, as a team, be interested in taking him. Yeah, I, I think the, the risk factor with him is more just that he is a high school pitcher. I mean, if you look at that group that Carlos mentioned, I mean, if you just take a, if you look at a control group of other high school pitchers drafted in the first round, it probably is not <laughs> going to look so hot either. Like I'm, I just pulled up the 2013 draft right now. So for high school pitchers, you had, all right, top five pick was Cole Stewart. Cole Stewart, you know, threw hard for a high school pitcher, certainly not 100 miles an hour. You had him. The Red Sox took Trey Ball at seven. Uh, the Blue Jay, I mean, Phil Bickford obviously did not sign, but he was a top 10 pick. Um, who else was that year? You had, oh, Hunter Harvey also in in the first round. So it's, you know, th- these guys don't throw or did not throw triple digits out of high school, but the success rate of, of that group, uh, not not so hot. And it's not, I don't think, atypical of of the track record that we just see in in high school pitching overall. JJ, you kind of touched. I would make a point like that. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, you kind of touched on this when you were talking about it. Um, Do do you think that for for guys like Pint and guys like Kolek, it was a matter of the industry maybe misevaluating some of the secondary stuff outside of velocity? Or do you think it is just simply the case that that recently – the emphasis was on velocity more where it's not just six years later, or do you think it's a combination of the two? I, I think, it, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, in Pint's case, I mean, again, it's been control, you know, it, it's obviously been a concern. I don't think Kolek stuff has held up in pro ball to kind of follow up though on, on what Ben said. Okay. I went to 15, right? Well, in the 15 class, we had Colby Allard and Nolan Watson as uh two of the top one, two, three, four, five, six, seven pitchers taken, high school pitchers taken that year. Nolan Watson is the exact opposite of what we're talking about here. Nolan Watson was a guy who was athletic, right-hander, 
where you're betting on velocity development really could pitch all these things. Well, it could go wrong that way too. Nolan Watson never got those velocity gains that you really kind of wanted to see. So what happens? Nolan Watson never ended up being all that effective as a minor league pitcher um, because he didn't throw hard enough. Colby Allard. Colby Allard has always known how to pitch. It's just that his fastball, you know, needs a little bit more, uh, you know, a, a little bit more on it. And so it's not like if you said, all we're going to do is draft these, you know, these athletic pitchers who are going to develop into their velocity. Yeah, you may find Jack Flaherty, but you may find Nolan Watson. It, and the flip side of that is, is even if we talk about on the college side, you know, I've seen very few college pitchers with more present stuff than Carlos Rodon his sophomore year and turn around and Carlos Rodon hasn't been all that great. Carson Fulmer, Dylan Tate. It's the draft is hard. I guess would be my, my overarching theme on this. I think we, we also see too, we, we have 18, 18 year old pitchers and 17 and even younger than that. Who, who are not high school pitchers who sign from the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Mexico. So, so we have a, a sample there and, and we do have pitchers who threw a hundred miles an hour at 18 years old or, or 99, hundred miles an hour. Uh, I don't think there's a huge difference, right? Between 99 or hundred, right. but like Sixto Sanchez threw 99. He threw a hundred miles an hour when he was 18 years old. He, I believe he's our top pitching prospect in baseball Yep. Right now, he obviously is. I mean, he's. I, I would say he's very athletic. Throws a lot of strikes. Um, so I, 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 that kind of goes back to what I was saying previously, where I don't think I, I. I think the big, big velocity is is a plus for the player, but obviously it's it's a it's a matter of evaluating a, a pitcher more holistically as far as everything you look for in a pitcher, and not just saying. Ooh, this guy throws really, really hard, uh, and he's really young, which is which. Kind of to answer your question earlier, Carlos, I think that probably was more of a factor back in you know 2013, 14, 15, even. The velocity explosion was it. It was starting to kind of trend up, I think, at that point, and now it's <laughs> reached a pretty ridiculous level. And, and we just have more more data, more information, and, and more track record. And, and I think people have a better understanding now that, okay, it is great if, if you're in high school and, and you can throw 98 miles an hour, but it's not everything. We got to see, feel to spin a breaking ball, uh, ideally feel for, for a changeup too, to project a three-pitch mix as a, a starter. Uh, we want to see some control uh, the delivery the arm action that that we look for and and then again even when you do have all that it's <laughs> you still have to stay healthy and there's a lot that can go wrong between uh 17 18 years old and, and the time you are are ready for the major leagues if, if you get to that point yeah absolutely i, I think kind of jj you you nailed it earlier when you just summed it up with drafting is hard it, it's very difficult even when you know all these things and you you hit everything accurately in your reports, so many things can change and so many things can happen in the future. Um, the, the draft and especially the baseball draft is just very, very difficult. Um, 
I think the pigeon conversation is really interesting. I'm glad that we were able to kind of dive into it a little bit because we haven't really talked about hard throwers here lately. I feel like most of the guys we've talked about, Ben, have been kind of the the projectable, lean, athletic control guys have a really good feel for spin. So getting some of your guys' thoughts on on just upper end velocity for these high school guys, I feel like is 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 a nice little refresher. But um wanted to talk a little bit about where you guys actually sit when you're at a game. Ben, I know you wanted to to discuss this. Um I've had conversations with scouts about this a lot, just because you see them going up the side for pitcher opens, you get open looks for hitters. Um we like to talk just scouting conversations on this podcast, but Ben, when you go to a game, where are you trying to set up to get looks of players and how does that change depending on whether you're at like a showcase or you're at a game bearing down on one player, just a couple of players? Uh, what's kind of your, your mentality when you're actually in a game or at a game going to see players live? Yeah, I think it depends on what the setting is, whether it's a game or a showcase, and then whether if it's before the game or after the game, or if you're just there to see one player versus uh, a whole a whole team of guys. So, you know, look, usually I'll just end up sitting behind the plate because I'm there to with my video camera, so I want to take as much video as I can to to share with all of our our baseball America readers so everybody can kind of come to the park with me and basically see see what I'm seeing so it's so I can just show you a video in addition to the scouting report to just to be able to show people so um so I think that's that's why I I usually just end up sitting behind home plate for it but yeah I mean I think during BP this year has been difficult or, or the past year has been difficult because usually a lot of times I'll just go right on the field and and watch BP from a side angle and, and get video there right on the field, right? So I'll be on the open side, whether it's for a, a right-handed hitter, I'll, I would be on the, the first base side, or if it's the left-handed hitter on the, on the third base side. But this year it's been, you know, I don't want to get up and close to all these, all these players. No, no disrespect to anybody, nothing personal. We've just got uh, a virus going around, so I'm trying to be careful and, and be cautious. So, um, so you know, you're staying a little bit further back. But yeah, during during pregame, it's or or if you're just there to see one hitter again, a lot of times you know scouts will just be there sitting on on sitting on that open side just to get a, a better feel for for that hitter's mechanics, just to see how his swing works from from the open side I feel like people think oh like there's a a scouts section right behind home plate but I I think a lot of times you see people moving around and trying to get different looks and and different angles at a player so that's I mean that's one of the things I'm kind of wondering about once the minor league season gets started is how how rigid they're going to be as far as where we can uh where, where we can go to to sit and 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 see see players yeah, yeah. For me, I feel like behind the plate is always the best spot to be. I go to a lot of showcases in the summer where you're really trying to look at everyone on the field, uh, and it can be hard to pick your spots and move around when you're just really trying to bear down and, or not bear down on anyone, but get a a look at everyone. Um, and I honestly feel like at this point, I still like watching hitters from beso- behind the plate more than an open side, just because again, I think I mentioned it on here. I'm not an expert in breaking down mechanics 
or anything like that. So I feel like for me personally, when I'm behind the plate, I feel like it's a lot easier to get an understanding of how a player is able to cover the plate, how they're reacting to um, different pitch types um, from behind the plate is easier for me. I, I've asked some scouts about this and, and some guys do prefer that open side look, but I've talked to some more recently who say they prefer watching a hitter from behind the plate as well. So I'm kind of curious about the things that you can pick up from an open side look at a hitter, Ben, or JJ, if you want to jump in here that, that you're just not going to be able to get from a behind the plate look. Yeah, I just I think the way the way the hitter's bat comes through the hitting zone, I can get a, a sense for that. Um, just yeah, different things about the the player's swing mechanics, his his balance, the 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 way his hands work, the way his lower half works. It's again, I'm I'm kind of with you. Where I'll I'll in part just for the the video purposes and because. A lot of the a lot of the games I'm going to are, are more the the bigger events, so it's not just you know if you're an area scout, right? Like you're probably going to a game and and you might just be, especially if you're at a high school game to see a guy. Like you're you're probably just there to see one guy, <laughs> yeah. in a lot of cases. So you might stand off to to the side, or, or or even if it even if it is a pitcher that you're there to see, you might stand off to the side just to get a sense for the the pitcher's mechanics from from the open side to for, for an inning or, or just for a little bit. Um, yeah. The, the pitcher open side looks have always been just more immediately obvious to me why it's useful just because it's a lot easier to see how they get off the mound, how their body works, kind of their balance point and their delivery. Um, maybe it's easier to see what their arm action looks like in the back that you can't really pick up on when you're watching from behind the plate. So that one has always been a little bit more intuitive to me. And I think just, watching pitchers and, and bearing down on pitchers has always just been easier for me personally, just because the number of reps you get. Um, but no, it's an interesting conversation to have. Do, do you feel like there are differences in an open side look of a hitter in batting practice versus a game? Cause I feel like there are a lot of those mechanical cues and ideas of a player's bat path that you can get in BP um, and you get a number of, a number of reps in BP that maybe you don't get in a game. Do you feel like there's something that, that hitters can show you in a game from that side that maybe you couldn't see in a batting practice uh, setting? Yeah, I, I think it's the, – the, there are a lot of hitters whose swing looks good in BP and that swing that they take when it's the coach who always throws them BP and knows what spot to throw it into to – groove it right into that hitter's swing path where he knows <laughs> you know it's it's coming in straight it's it's not too fast he doesn't have to react to a breaking ball it's easy to be in a groove it's easy to be balanced it's easy to be on time in bp all of a sudden when it's when it's game time and oh i don't know what pitch is coming i don't know if it's going to be a fastball or a breaking ball or a changeup i don't know where the location is going to be the the pitch is going to have different movement on it then yeah, you start to see a lot of uh, a lot of players, especially the the younger you go. I mean, obviously the higher up, it's it's more consistent from your BP swing to your game swing. But especially the the lower down you go on the chain, whether it's in the minor leagues or or at the amateur level, you see those those nice balanced, easy swings start to uh, start to break down. You see more more lunging. You can. You can see more hitters get 
caught off balance and and the swings don't kind of don't quite come through the zone the the same way so you i think you can see that from behind the plate too but having yeah i i think it's important just to just to just to be able to have experience watching games from from different angles whether it's from you know the center field where you know your more traditional tv camera angle or or behind the plate or or off to the side just to get different experience seeing players from from different angles because you know sometimes it's <laughs> you know depending where you are or, or what the circumstances are like this year is a perfect example um you know especially uh at, at certain points last year i was not super eager to get <laughs> behind the the plate and, and crowd behind there with a bunch of people who are not the uh, most compliant with wearing masks. Right. <laughs> so I <I'd>, I'd, I'd <laughs> feel more comfortable being out in, even out in center field, watching a, a player from there or, or off to the side and trying to distance away from people. So I, you know, obviously this year's or this past year has been more of an extreme, but I think it's important to get different it's important to get experience watching hitters and, and watching pitchers and, and the game from, from different angles too. How about de- defenders or, or no, you can go ahead, JJ, if you want to jump in. Yeah. The thing I wanted to say is, is that with that is I think that been hit on a little bit is I want to see timing. I mean, to me, timing is something that is both incredibly important and also something hard to fully evaluate because every hitter is going to be off in their timing at times. I mean, that's the whole point of what pitchers are trying to do. Pitchers are trying to mess with their timing. But if you kind of, if you see someone who's always off on the front foot, who's always kind of caught kind of in between where they're having to really use their hands to try to make up for the mistakes they've made, you know, in kind of when they start their swing, things like that. It, I want to see that. And I do feel like sometimes going off to the side gives me a different angle of that and a little bit more ability to perceive that than I do sitting behind, you know, sitting behind the plate. So that's another thing to me, that's the difference between a BP swing. I'm not looking for timing in BP because obviously I'm looking for swing mechanics. I'm I'm looking for all that. But once the game happens, I, I want to see, okay, is this a, a hitter who can consistently time pitches? And if not, what are the problems that are arising? You know, there are pitchers, there are hitters, there are hitters I can think of the minor leagues who will yank a 95, 96 mile an hour fastball foul consistently. Well, you can't have good timing and do that because you're probably were, if you were early on 95, well, then what were you looking for? You know, that, that means your timing's off. There's something going on where if you said you're late on 95, well, that could be swing mechanics. But if you're early on 95? Bat speed too quick. Well, right. Were you thinking you were looking for 100 and they got you off base with their 95 that they've been throwing all night? So that, that's some of the things I'm looking for when I go mm-hmm. out to the side. How about for when you guys are watching fielders, whether that's catchers, whether that's infielders, outfielders, is there a specific angle that you guys are looking to watch them from that, that you'll be able to pick up on a lot more than maybe just a behind the plate look? I feel like 
for catchers, a lot it's very hard to see a lot of the the details of what's going on in their game from behind the plate. But I will also say for catchers, one of the one of the most obvious things to note for them is if you aren't noticing a catcher, it's almost like a good umpire. If you're not noticing them, they they're probably doing a, a fairly good job just at a very basic level. But what do you guys think about when you're bearing down on on a fielder? Uh, so for you know when they take a pregame in and out or at a showcase taking in and out, I'm always there trying to take video of these guys just like I was talking about before just to be able to share with our our readers all these guys as much as I can see so for for outfield I mean usually the guys are taking a couple throws to third base a couple throws home so I'll try to sit off somewhere usually right behind third base if I'm on the field or I'll be in the the stands on the third base side if I can be to um, you know take video from there when the infielders are going, I'll usually, if I can, I'll, 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 if I'm on the field, I'll, I'll either be right up the first base line, not behind first base, especially at an amateur showcase, because there's a good chance you're getting <laughs> you get clocked in the head with a, have your glove ready with a baseball that. down there. But <laughs> yeah, so uh, otherwise I'll go up in, you know, I'll, I'll try to be up in the first base stances to try to get video of the guys taking their their ground balls at uh, shortstop or, or wherever they're they're at in the infield and try to get some of the throws on on video too for for catchers in you know at a, at a showcase I'll either sometimes I'll go right behind the catcher when they're throwing a second but but also if it's especially if it's an amateur international showcase where you get a lot of flexibility and and freedom I'll just set up right behind I'll just I'll just go out to center field basically right to shallow center field and and set up out there. I think it's a good way to see the catchers transfer their their footwork, uh how they how they exchange the ball and obviously arm strength, accuracy. So it's it's a good angle. Like you said, you're you're evaluating a catcher usually in game, you're you're usually watching him from behind the plate. So it's a good way to for me at least to get a view of the catcher and, and how he's how his throwing mechanics work obviously not the same in a showcase again compared to an actual game setting where there's a, a hitter in the box and you might have to handle a, a breaking ball on the throw down to second or a ball on the dirt compared to a guy just you know lobbing it into mm-hmm. you so so that's obviously a little bit different but but it is nice to have a different angle to to see how his throwing works yeah, absolutely. No, go ahead, JJ. To to me, um, you know, it depends on what I'm looking for. But catchers, I do like to be up the line, almost like where I would be for an open on a hitter for a catcher um, during a game, at least for you know like a half inning, just to see kind of how they move, um, get a better angle of how they receive. Like you know, is the hand are they boxing it? Are they you know you can't really see that all that well from behind home plate, mm-hmm. but if I'm take, watching the infield and all, I don't mind being behind a plate for that because I get, I feel like, a pretty good angle of seeing kind of how the hands work, how the actions, how the feet work, all those things that that I, I, I feel like that's a pretty decent view to see how a shortstop, how a second baseman. But again, like Ben said, a lot of times I'm taking video and I have found I can't do both at the same time. So if I'm taking video, I'm going to have to watch it afterwards to get the same evaluation. 
Yeah, actually, that, that's at least a good question that I have for Ben, because, Ben, you, you do get a ton of video at these games. Do you find it challenging to, like, kind of process an evaluation of a guy while you're videoing them? Because I've found the same challenge that JJ just talked about, just being able to do both at the same time is, is very difficult. Yeah, I think sometimes it, it, it sort of depends, right? Like, if I'm at – like I said, I just watched Joshua Baez this past weekend. I'll probably go out to see him again outfielder who's you know we, we have him projected as a, a first round pick right now so you know I'm, I'm out there seeing him and they, they have Ivan Arias at shortstop for the 2022 class he's another Vanderbilt commit so those are really the two guys I'm watching so if I'm only there to see a couple guys it's it's pretty easy for me to focus on on that while I'm taking video at the same time on the other hand if I'm at Jupiter or something right like for the world would bat and there's a gazillion players there or I'm at you know I'm down in the Dominican Republic for a, a Dominican prospect league showcase or an MLB showcase and they've got three or four games in in one day if you know triple header quadruple header uh, basically you got to keep an eye on every player on the field or, or sometimes at the MLB showcases they'll have two or three fields going at once it's that 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 that's really hard to keep track of everybody at at once so it's I mean it's another advantage of of having the video is all right yeah like the the guys who really jump out and dominate you, you should remember them pretty easily like those are the guys who should stick out right away to you but at the same time having that video to go back at especially on the on the international side where it's you're you're seeing these guys so early and, and there's so many different years of players that you're trying to keep track of at once. It's it's very helpful to have the video to to go back on and, and review things. And again, like I was saying at these at some of these games or these showcases, the you know, they might go on for four or five days and they might start at nine AM or earlier and, and wrap up by 5 p.m. And if you're just out of the day, or excuse me, if you're out at the fields all day out in the sun, it's, you know, 90 plus degrees out there. I, I, and, and they're just back to back to back to back games. I promise you your, your concentration level at, at 3 p.m. is not the same as it was at 9 a.m. So again, having that video just to rely on and, and go back to, to check what you saw and, and see things that maybe you missed the first time, I think is, is super helpful. Yeah. That kind of leads to another point. Like I think that reminds me a lot of PG national. Uh, it's one of the bigger showcases in the summer and typically it's towards the beginning um, of like a draft cycle. And, and I've asked scouts kind of how they're able to juggle all these players that they're just getting their eyes on for maybe the first time in a lot of cases. And a lot of those guys told me that for events like that, where there are a ton of uh, there's a ton of talent collected on one field in a showcase environment with, like you said, it's at 8 a.m. to occasionally the, the last games will be wrapping up at 8, 9 p.m. Um, and for them, a lot of them say that for those events, they're really looking to see kind of tools that jump out at you um, and just the physicality of players on the field. And later on in the process, you'll be able to really bear down on more in-game skills and more of the nuances of what players are doing later in the process but for for those events just looking at who kind of pops out to you on a field 
that's that talented and getting a, a general sense of tool sets for players seems to be what a lot of those guys are doing at these types of events. But go ahead, JJ. I got a question I want to ask you guys along those lines. I've been talking to scouts about this a little bit lately. It's been sticking in my head. Like to me, that's one of the most enjoyable things is going to an event where I don't know anyone going in. That's what I kind of loved. I loved about the Appy league is I could go to Appy league and watch a BP and there might be a first round pick or a second round pick who I know coming in, but there's going to be a slew of 16, 17, 18 year olds that I've never heard of. And sometimes it doesn't always happen, but one of them, there'll be something about them that sticks in your head or, you know, or there's sometimes you go to a game. I remember being at a high A Myrtle beach, uh, Winston Salem game years ago. And this one guy kind of sticks out like to me, like there's something I like about him and ended up as Jose Martinez who at that time was like a 27 year old, 26 year old in low, you know, in high A as kind of this minor league vet. And two years later, he's in the majors. And it kind of, it was useful for me. It taught me, it reminded me, even if you can't quantify right away what it is about someone, you need to take a second look. How often when you guys go to like something that you don't know anyone out of it, how often does someone just, there's something, I don't want to make it sound like it's innate. I would put it probably more accurately describe it as there's something that synthesizes something in your eyes in your brain that you like the attributes of this player and I need to know more. I, I think it's pretty common on the international side, especially to, to do that. I mean, the higher up you go, like I, I hope if I'm going to a double a game or a triple a game, there's, there are players like that. Like I remember seeing Jeff McNeil in double a and I was like, Oh, this guy's actually kind of interesting and maybe more interesting than, you would think just given his his age and and where he's at um but i i think certainly it's 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 more rare to to see that at the upper levels but yeah the the lower down you go especially to the international amateur level or or even on the the backfields you can see right like at the the guys who would normally be playing in the gulf coast league or or in the arizona league who you know, may have may have signed a, a couple of years ago, but could have taken a, a big jump up in terms of their their stuff or their physicality or or their tools. Maybe they weren't a a big signing, but all of a sudden, yeah, actually this this guy looks this guy looks pretty interesting. There's definitely guys you see down there who who jump out who you might not might not know at first. I mean I try to know as many international players as I can, but there's there's always guys like that who 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 end up popping a little bit after after they sign? Yeah, I think it's probably similar for me. Just when I'm going to a lot of these events, there are typically a, a large number of guys who you've kind of heard about throughout their underclass years who you expect to be dudes and are dudes going into the process. So you maybe lean forward a little bit more and really bear down when when those guys get on the mound or step into the box. But one of the guys who uh, I'm trying to remember what year it would have been. I think it was a 2018 draft class at PG National. Kendrick Kalilau really impressed me. He's a he's a Florida outfitter and first baseman now um, and is draft eligible again. But he really impressed me just offensively because 2018 year was the class where there was all of these really impressive high school pitchers. Kumar Rocker was in that class. 
And every time Kyle got in the box, I feel like he was unfazed by all of them and really barreled a couple of them. Kumar Rocker got hit around by a number of players at this event, and Kalilau was one of the guys who, who doubled off of him, I believe, against like mid-90s fastball. And he just – he didn't seem at all phased. So he stuck with me as a guy who, entering the event, I don't think he was like a super well-known guy. Again, it's, it's PG National, so all of the players are, are very talented to just be at that event in the first place. But he's one that stuck out to me just because of the, the performance. And it's something that – I feel like can be useful and also can be it can hurt you like guys who you see and we've talked about this previously I think just like a bias you get from an early look at a player like I was really on Kendrick Kylao as a hitter because of that because he was he impressed me very early on so I feel like it's it can be beneficial if you see a guy who jumps out at you right away but I feel like you also need to be cautious of of not letting those first um first appearances and first looks really mislead you throughout the process maybe you see a guy on a really good day and that's that's he's not as good as that going forward something like that so I think it can be beneficial and it can also hurt you if you if you let it there's a I was talking to, at a conversation this was a, some years back but I was talking to a, a trainer about one of his players who was going to be signing for uh, a lot of money on uh on July 2nd that year. So we were, we were talking about that player and he said, he's just like, Ben, he's like, I'm telling you, he's like, you don't need to rank this player in your top 30 or 50 or, or whatever I was doing at the time for July 2nd. They were like this, they, you know, this, you know, higher up guy from, from the States came in and saw this guy. He had a, a, a my guy had a tryout and he had like by far the best day of his life. <laughs> he can, he can hit for power when, when he gets a, a fastball right into the zone where, where he can hit it uh, and he can hit it far when that happens, but he cannot hit a breaking ball. He, he really struggles with that. Every time he gets a breaking ball, uh, he, he can't, he can't hit it but he went out and got some fastballs and this team basically made a, a big, big investment and a big decision on this guy based on this very brief <laughs> look because he just got so enamored and, and so carried away from this one look. And, and the trainer was like, look, I, I see this guy all the time. I, I can't believe this team is making a, decision that way he's like i'm super happy about it because you know, <laughs> I, I figured the trainer would tell the team no that that's too much they need to downscale their offer a little bit yeah i don't i don't think that'll ever happen but <laughs> it's he i was like all right and and he was 100 percent correct i mean again because he sees this guy every single day we never ranked the player but it's it, yeah it's 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 a good example that teams teams do it it's and <laughs> you you definitely need to build build history and, and have a, a thorough process on 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 these guys when you're when you're trying to build a, an evaluation on them or uh, obviously in our case we're not making gigantic financial decisions but in, in the club's <laughs> cases that's that's got to be an important part of the process too otherwise you make you make mistakes yeah I, I or, think it just or more mistakes exactly I think it also just gets to another topic that we've gone into is just getting additional looks 
um, from other people within your organization or, or from us. It's always very beneficial for me when I can hear what you guys on staff think about certain players, um, whether that's to like confirm something I think or maybe challenge something that I think about a player and really think through it again and see, am I missing something? Is somebody else missing something? Um, what do we all agree on? What do we disagree on? And things like that. But I think that kind of leads into a conversation about like how many scouts um, have jobs with teams. And I, Ben, you wanted to touch on this as well, but like, do you think that is an argument for just teams having more scouts and having more eyes on these players to have just a greater um, kind of greater coverage of whether it's a, a situation like in an international player like that, where maybe you're not basing your entire evaluation on this one look. And maybe in this situation, it was a case where other scouts saw this player worse, but it was just the decision maker kind of went in there and saw him on a good day. And his voice carries a little bit more weight um, at the end of the decision. But I haven't looked through our directory yet just to see the number of turnover in the scouting industry from last year to this year. I know there are some teams who are dealing with a lot fewer area scouts um, on the amateur side, but where do you guys kind of see the state of scouting with teams? Do you think there's an argument for teams uh, expanding their scouting staffs or do you think with the amount of technology that's in the game and the amount that you're able to do on video um, that, that it makes sense? I don't know that I've ever talked to anyone at BA who is on team like get rid of scouts. That seems hard hard to justify from our perspective, but uh, what are your just general thoughts uh, on, on where the scouting is at? I think every team's scouting department is too small. I yep. think it's too small on, on the amateur side in the United States. I think it's too small on the international side. And, and this is for even the clubs that probably have the bigger scouting departments relative to other clubs I mean, we were just talking about like, all right, you're at some of these big events. It's it's hard to bear down and, and focus on all these guys at once. So that's you know that's part of it. But also, I mean, think about think about the Northeast this year, right? It's it's one of the best years in a decade, if not more, for for draft talent in the Northeast. And the season, you know, New Jersey starts, I think, like the first or second week of, of April. There are kids in Massachusetts this year, and, and obviously it's an unusual year, but who aren't going to get started until, until May. And yeah, but even, even in a typical year, no COVID, they get started way later than everyone else. So I think your, your general point kind of stands regardless yeah, of pandemic. Or so, so you have to cover a, a pretty wide area just just geographic area you can't be everywhere at once so all right you have an area scout and and you probably have a a regional cross checker and if there's a you know a a potential first round or top 100 type pick you have a scouting director and and national cross checker type guys who will go in and and get a look at at certain guys but they've got to be flying all around the country too if if I'm making a decision on a player where we're going to be investing millions of dollars or, or even if it's not that size of an investment, but we could potentially get an edge on, on a later round pick where the, the value to our organization, even if we're paying the guy 
you know, $250,000 as a, you know, later in the draft, but what the value could be in the tens of millions of dollars to the organization. I want to have as much information on these, on these players as possible. I don't want to be making a decision based on, Oh yeah, we got, you know, looks at him last summer. And then we got, you know, a, a few, a few looks at him over, over the spring of, of his draft year. I want, I want somebody to be at, if not every game, close to every game that these guys are playing. Whereas right now you really have to focus on your, your very, very top targets and, and you just don't have as much time if, if you're an area scout or, or just throughout the organization to, to have that level of, of looks at, at, at the players that, mm-hmm. that I would, I would want to have. Yeah, I will say it always stresses me out um, at a significant level to hear areas, area guys talking about kind of the coverage they've done early in the year and then them telling me like the guys they still have to hit and just having to juggle that from their perspective sounds like such a challenge. Uh, I can't even imagine having to like be on the ground and do it. But JJ, are you kind of in a similar mindset as Ben here um, in terms of scouts? Like it, it would be – I, I don't know that I'm just wondering what the counter argument would be outside of money for team. Like, like if every team had as much money as they wanted to be able to staff up, would, would every team not just have more scouts? I don't see an argument against it. Well, I mean, what we've seen though, I feel like over the last uh, year is teams have very much responded to a short term dip in revenue by making long-term decisions that, I mean, you can't help but be kind of cynical about, which is you, as I look at it, you have a culture and you can make a decision in a day that ruins your culture for years. And there are teams, and the the thing I'm saying about this is, is like, you have a decision to make, okay, you know, Scouts, by the standards of what an MLB team has in revenue, scouts don't make all that much. There are, you, you can have a scouting department. A scouting department is a, a few million dollar expense for an MLB team. And if you intend, if your basically thought is, we're just going to be scoutless going forward or much more reduced scouting, then yes, you've damaged your culture by laying off scouts, by furloughing scouts for long periods of time, all that. But if it's something where you're doing saying, okay, well, in 2022, we're going to be back to normal. The thing to me that's always been true about scouting and it's true about analysts and it's true about rovers and it's true about, you know, minor league coaches, all that. There's a culture component to this where you're trying to have everyone believe in the shared identity of whatever team you are. We're all Padres. We're all angels. We're all Cardinals. We're all whatever team. And some of that is, is probably, you know, it, it's, it's kind of, it sounds good, but I mean, I do believe that a lot of people who work in baseball romanticize it and believe it. Cause I, I sure do in some ways. I mean, we, I absolutely want everyone at work at Baseball America to believe in Baseball America and kind of put in, work really hard, but we're also all in this together. Well, you destroy that 
the minute that you say, yeah, you've done a really good work for us, but you know what? We're having a rough year. So we're going to have to let you go. Or the Oakland Athletics telling all their minor leaguers, no, we're not going to pay you, you know, this year. It's nothing of your fault, but we're not going to pay you. And then eventually being shamed into paying them because no one else was going to do what they were doing. Well, those kind of decisions have long-term ramifications. And it just seems incredibly short-sighted to me to make decisions like that, to say, we're going to make the short-term pain a little less, but we're going to make the long-term. And, and again, there's a cynical viewpoint that some teams, maybe they have, which is, oh, there's always going to be a thousand people who want these jobs for everyone that we have. And so it's not really going to have a long-term impact on us. But if you treat, you know, all these, these are a lot of teams. I mean, companies always say, you know, people are our biggest resource. Our people are our greatest resource. Well, if you treat it that way, then you clearly, that's not something you believe. You believe that everyone is just a replaceable cog and moving on. Well, that's not something teams ever publicly say is they believe is true, but maybe that's actually what they believe. But it does seem to me kind of to follow up what both of you guys said, it's not just how much you spend on signing bonus. It's also the amount of time, the amount of money that you are going to spend as far as developing the player. You are going to spend a multi-year investment. You are going to spend a roster spot. I want to have as many looks at that player as I want to know as much about that player as I can so that I make the right decision. And to do that, I, I want to have as many different people take a look at that player as I can in the lead up to whether we decide whether to pick them or not. I mean, that that's how we do our job at like we, we wouldn't, yes. we, I, I wouldn't just write up a player in the Toronto Blue Jay system by picking up the phone and calling one guy or calling two guys. <laughs> I want as much information on that player as possible. And I would, want that even more so if I was an owner or, or a general manager or, or a scouting director trying to make a, a decision on a player who we're, we're actually bringing into our organization. So I, I, I agree with what you're saying, JJ, but, but, but even going back to pre, pre-COVID, going back to, say, 2019, I, I would just want bigger, a bigger scouting department, a bigger amateur scouting department than than what every team in baseball has. Why why is there one area scout for a team in in the Carolinas or in the Northeast? Right, like why what would you not want more than that? Like I realize there are other people in the organization who come in and and cross check guys, but again, like these are these are big areas. There's a lot of players you have to cover if you if you have more information on on these guys there's somebody who is maybe popping up later on that that you can be on that you otherwise might miss out on because you've got to focus on on the bigger fish in in that area I, I i would rather have more people on the ground who who have more information and, and really get to know these guys and hopefully you get a a paul goldschmidt in, in the later rounds or, or a Mookie Betts or, or somebody like that, or, or it doesn't even have to be a, a you know, a super, superstar type player. If, if you can get 
if you're getting an extra MLB regular or so, yeah, someone who just has some sort of uh, just adds some sort of value to the team in whatever capacity in late rounds, it's a huge success. Yeah. So I, I think having more people's insight in your own organization on a player, I, I think is extremely valuable and it, it just increases your opportunity to get, to get lucky, frankly, like it's, you know, signing good players. There's, there's a certainly like a work ethic component to it and, and a, and a skill level component to it. But you, you also sometimes just need to put yourself in a situation to get, to have some good luck. And, and the more you're at the field and the more players you're seeing, the more exposure you have to, to be able to get lucky and, and be in the right place at the right time. I think you talk to any scout, especially internationally, where, where you're going out to a field to see a, a certain player and you're there to see that player in particular, but you know, you're, you're seeing these other guys who are also there in that same program and you say, Oh wait, who's, who's that guy? That, that guy over there actually is, is probably the best guy in the field. I, I like him. And that's, that's how you end up. If you're the Phillies signing Sixto Sanchez or, or, or other players like that. I mean, there, there's so many examples of that where, where a scout was, you know, was just out at the field, went out to see somebody and, and there just happened to be, you know, an eligible pitcher or, or somebody else who, who was not a, a well-known high profile guy who he just happened to be there on the right day. And, and because that scout put him, put himself in the position to be in the right place at the right time, like that's obviously a, a work ethic component to it, but at the same time, it's, you're just fortunate and lucky that that guy, that, that really good player happens to be there on that day you're there. So just, just having more scouts out on the ground, whether it's internationally or in the United States just gives you more opportunities to, to have that, that type of, um, that type of occurrence happen. No, I think, I think you guys have, have summed it up well. I think those are great points. I think teams are going to just be more successful if they invest more in scouting. I think that's an opinion everyone at BA has, has held for a long time. Um, I think this is a good spot to stop for a break. Uh, when we come back, we will do a little bit of mock draft talk. Maybe we'll run through uh, some of the top picks that, that we would select if we had to pick for teams today and then get into a few listener questions. So thank you guys who have listened um, to this point and we'll be right back. And we are back. Uh, I think we're actually going to touch on one player that Ben saw this past week that we did not get in the first segment. Um, but Ben, you saw someone who was not named Joshua Baez and it was pretty impressive. He was draft eligible last year out of high school. Uh, but is now playing for Clemson. What do you have to say about Caden Grice? Yeah, I saw Caden Grice play for Clemson. Six six, probably two forty. F- true freshman, and he looked really good. I don't have his stats right in front of me, but he's slugging about seven hundred, I believe. Yeah, he's hitting he's- just really quickly to give you the stats. He's hitting three thirty eight, four sixty five, six ninety one. Six home runs, four doubles in 22 games this season as a true freshman. So that's a fifth or a one one five six OPS. That's pretty loud. 
Yeah, six six. There's a ton of strength, bat speed, leverage in his swing. Drove the ball really well. The opposite way, if you watch some of the highlights from him earlier in the year, he can turn on the ball with authority too. Uh, defensively, I mean, he he does have a good arm. He, he pitches some too. I think his future is. I mean, I haven't seen him pitch this year, but just based on watching him hit, <laughs> I I, I like, certainly like his future as a hitter, even though it's going to be probably limited to, to first base, maybe you could move around. He he, he does move around pretty well for his size. I could see maybe going out to a a corner outfield spot, but I think the value is going to come from what he does in, in the box, but he was really impressive. And and especially for a guy who's still 18 years old. I mean, I, I look at some of the data bursts from kids who were talking about as, high school players for this upcoming draft. I believe his date of birth is only two days apart from Jordan Lawler. Uh, he's, he's younger than Phil Abner. He's younger than some of the other players who, who are in this high school class for 2021. And here's Caden Grice dominating in, in the ACC already. Yeah. Grice is interesting because the summer prior to his senior season on the circuit, I think a lot of teams had him turned in as a pitcher just because from the left side, he was throwing like an 89, 92 mile per hour fastball, solid slider and change up through strikes with all three of those. And he had real like hit tool questions because he swung and missed a ton. Uh, and, and then during the spring, he got a lot of buzz as a hitter because he came out in the off season and looked like an absolute monster and was showing just ridiculous raw power um, so I think he's definitely answering some of those questions about whether or not he's going to hit, uh, and that definitely changes the profile. So the, the fact that he's gotten off to such a loud start as a true freshman in the ACC, um, and like you said, last year he would have been 18 years old at the draft, um, so that age component is a nice factor as well. But he was an interesting one last year, and, and I'm glad that you got to see a good look from him offensively. But But the age question – I think is almost overblown at this point. I'm curious if you guys think the same. I know we talk a lot about like, you can't take an old high school hitter. Uh, teams really put an, some teams with models really put a team, uh, put young players, they prioritize them. I think no one does it more than the Indians, uh, at least in terms of the guys they've been able to get. They, they draft very young. Other teams see it more of uh, as a tiebreaker for players in the same range. Like if you have a guy evaluated at a similar level, maybe you go with the younger player. Um, but do you guys think that, that the age factor is overrated? Do you think teams should put a lot of stock into it? How do you kind of see that? JJ, you can throw it to you first. I like the tiebreaker idea mm -hmm. of it's all part. Uh, none of this is black and white. All of this has kind of gradations, shadings, all that. And to me, if I've got two players, and one of them's 17 and a half, and one of them's 19 and a quarter. Well, if I like him similarly, take the 17-year-old. He's got further – he likely potentially has more development. Now, that said, Bryce Harper was pretty physically developed as a 17-year-old. His rate of improvement – he's been a great player – but his rate of improvement from age 17, 18 to 24, 25 – is less than, say, someone like Francisco Lindor, who physically kind of grew into who he is more. 
more so. So you, you have to look at that. You, you look at Bobby Witt Jr., who was old for his class, and you could say, oh, we don't want Bobby Witt Jr. because he's old for the class. Well, that's <laughs> stupid because, no, you want him because he's a better talent than the other guys who are available. And the other part of it is, yes, you're not – if he was 19 – and you're saying, well, I hope he fills out and grows into it. Okay, you have less likelihood that he's going to develop into that, 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 that pro a projectable body is going to re meet the projection. At some point, Carlos Tochi, who I kept hearing, this is, I'm going old school on some of these guys, although they're kind of mid-school for me in my BA <laughs> era. But, you know, Carlos Tochi is a 17-year-old. It's like, look at Carlos Tochi. Just imagine what he's going to be like when he fills out. And then Carlos Tochi, four years later, is like, oh, he never filled out. Well, you weren't asking Bobby Witt Jr. to fill out. Bobby Witt Jr. Although he Bryce has Terrain, pretty well. <laughs> right. But, but when Bobby Witt Jr. was a sophomore on the same, you know, USA Baseball TOS team with Bryce Terang, who was a first-round pick the year before, he was the better physical talent right then. You know, it wasn't something where you're saying, well, he'll catch up to Bryce Terang. No, he was already that kind of guy. Jared mm -hmm. Kellenick was already – you know, was a, you know, was a physical guy as a rising junior when you saw him kind of in, you know, at national events and all. So you, you have to work all of those things into this. It's not just age. It's one of many, many factors. Yeah, I think it's, it's one ingredient in the evaluation. I, I, I probably view it as more than just a, a tiebreaker. I mean, look, like, all right, you're comparing a player to another player and, and they're four months apart, right? It's, it's not a big difference. It's that, that's not a big deal, but, but you do have players, whether they reclassified or, or for whatever reason, who are, are more than a year in age apart in, in this upcoming high school draft class. And, and, and we see it in, in every class too. I mean, even at the college level right now, like Judd Fabian is, is struggling He's also, by age, pretty comparable to a you know a, a traditional college sophomore because he's 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 just young for for his class. I mean, it's tough to keep up with all the COVID classifications and and all that. It's a different story. But uh, like Joshua Baez is is a good example. He's he's more than a year younger than some of these other pretty high profile players in in the class. So I, I, I do think that makes a difference when, and you can almost evaluate him in, in the context of, okay, like you, you could put him into the 2022 class and he'd be fairly age appropriate there. So I, I think when you do have that big of an age gap, especially when we're talking about teenage players at, at that young of an age, uh, a 12 or, or more month age gap, can be significant when we're looking at, at two players who are in the same class. I think an interesting one just for this year's class is Khalil Watson versus Jordan Lawler. I think Khalil will be just a little bit over 18 on draft day. And then Jordan Lawler is one of the older players in the class. He'll be 19 on draft day. They're in a similar range in terms of, I think they're in separate tiers, but they're both first-round talents on our board. Ben, how would you kind of compare, like, 
the value of Watson being significantly younger than Lawler, who we have as, as the best high school player on the board. Yeah, I, I think it, it matters. But again, going back to what JJ was saying, it's not like you just write somebody off the board because they're older than, <laughs> than, than other players yeah. in their class. You, you just keep that into, into context. You keep it into mind. I mean, it seems like, Carlos, it, it doesn't seem like it's hurting Jordan Lawler's stock much <laughs> by, by any means, at least as far as what the, yeah. the clubs are. are I don't, doing. I'm curious why we heard a lot more about Bobby Witt Jr.'s age than we are Lawler. Maybe it's just because Bobby Witt has been so impressive lately that it's kind of dampened those conversations, but it, it, it definitely seems like it hasn't come up as much as it has previously. Maybe that's, I, I'm not sure what, what the rationale would be for that, but I, I think there is some, some pretty solid track record of, 19 year old or older high school players doing doing things well in pro ball that maybe has quieted a little bit a, a few of the critics perhaps that's the case i'm not sure but um moving on to unless jj if you had anything else you wanted to add but i think we can move on to some mock draft stuff we have um our first in-season mock went up on the site earlier this week um i think it's worth mentioning like how we value and how people should look at a mock draft at this point. I try to clarify it repeatedly in, in the actual mock draft that teams don't even know who they're taking right now. So an actual mock draft of saying, oh, we are hearing this player to this team is a little probably overstating the information that you have. We don't try to do that. I think they're useful to see kind of where the class is shaping up if the draft were today, which guys are sliding, what ranges certain players are in. Uh, and we've also started to bring in um, some scouts to make alternating picks. And I feel like that adds a little bit of authenticity to the process as well. So mock drafts three months out, maybe not super useful in terms of like the, the end result. We're only going to get judged on the last mock draft we do. But people love mock drafts. They love talking through like which players their team is going to get. So I figured for this podcast, um, we could maybe pick the top 10 players in the draft four teams at this moment, just kind of a fun exercise to think through maybe talk about a few players if you guys wanted to, but have already randomized an order. Um, and JJ, you get the first pick, Ben will go second and I will go third. So unless you have something to add about mock draft philosophies and just thought process, JJ, you can uh, make the first pick of our little 10 pick mock or, or shadow mock for the pirates. At, if we'd have talked a week ago, I, you know, I, we probably may have had a different answer. But sitting here right now, I can't ignore. I mean, I, I got three choices. I look at a lighter, rocker, lawler. Not going to go wrong any of those ways. As we record this right now, I will say with Kumar Rocker, I am fascinated to see what his stuff looks like this weekend. And I say that because. His velo was down a decent bit, you know, in his last start. It was on sick, it was on one day short rest, and he still was effective. I don't want to make it up for more it was more than it is, but I'm definitely going to be interested to see if he's sitting 94, if he's sitting 95, if he's sitting 91, because at some point, pretty quickly, you know, that becomes a trend if it's something that it is, you know, that his velocity has fallen off for multiple weeks in a row. But I'm picking Jack Leiter right here. The most effective pitcher in college baseball, I would say so far, 
this season. And I still want to see how he holds up over the course of a full season, something we haven't had a chance to see. But he's holding up really well right now. Um, you know, it's – could he, could he throw a third no-hitter? Can he get no-hitter, you know – can he go three starts in a row without giving up a hit? It doesn't seem possible, but the way he's been pitching, it also doesn't seem crazy that he maybe could. So lighter is my pick. All right, Ben, you are up for the Rangers at number two. I will, I will take Kumar Rocker for the Rangers. It's yeah. If, if JJ had taken Rocker, I would have taken Jack Leiter. If I'm picking one or two, um, I'm happy getting either of these Vanderbilt pitchers, rocker, throw strikes, good fastball, outstanding slider, uh, ERA under one this year, misses a lot of bats, track record is there. Um, like JJ said, obviously keep an eye on on the velocity, but right now I think he has a lot of, a lot of attributes that point to him being being big league ready very quickly and potentially being a, a front of the rotation type of starter. All right, I am up number three for the Tigers. I feel like this is probably going to be the easiest pick of the entire process. I was going to take whichever of the top three you guys didn't, and that winds up being Jordan Lawler, uh, Dallas Jesuit High shortstop. Um, we've mentioned him a lot before. I think this almost reemphasizes a point that I want to make, but I do feel like there are a lot of people who think Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter are in a tier of their own. All the feedback we've gotten from scouts to this point, Lawler seems to be in that tier. There are some people who have Lawler as the top player in the class. We've gotten that feedback. And I think it's probably easy to cluster Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter into a tier of their own because they are teammates, because they're pitching back to back every weekend, because they're, more prominent in in fans eyes as college players who you're able to see more frequently or with uh just you're able to watch them play more often than you are with any high school player but i do want to emphasize that every all the feedback we've gotten to this point and it could change jordan lawler is in that top tier in the class and i almost we've we've talked about this before but i really like the idea of taking a hitter in that tier just because of the general risk factors of pitchers Nothing specific to either of Kumar Rocker or Jack Leiter in this, but just the pitcher hit rate is so spotty that I, I feel pretty good about getting a player like Lawler who is toolsy. He plays a premium position. He's shown an ability to hit at a high level. He has plus speed. He has power potential. He's got a body he's going to grow into more. Um, I just don't think there's a real hole in his game to speak of at this point, so I'm happy with getting Jordan Lawler at three. And then we will go to JJ again at number four for the Red Sox. I, I agree with you completely. This is a uh, top tier of three right now, I think. And it's much more of a three person tier than I think a lot of, you know, fans, I wouldn't even call casual fans, but I think fans who follow this pretty closely, it's, you see what Rocker and Leiter are doing every weekend on TV or, you know, on social media and all. And it becomes easy to think it's just those two guys, but I think Lawler's in there. I think I've got the easiest pick here because even when I knew I had pick one and then I had pick four, I pretty much felt like I could write down that I was going to take Marcelo Meyer at pick four. because I felt pretty confident that neither of you were going to take anyone other than lighter. You know, if I, whoever I took, you guys were going to take the other two of that top tier. But I feel like right now, 
that Marcelo Meyer kind of exists on this in-between tier that he can move up into the top tier with a strong spring, or maybe he moves back to this next tier, you know, or maybe, you know, potentially two, but right now he kind of exists in this netherworld of his own. And so I'll, I'll take the other shortstop, you know, that really checks a lot of boxes, has a chance to, to kind of develop and be a, a really physical shortstop, or if he has to, you know, long-term third base, second base, that'd be fine too. He's going to have, should have the uh, offensive ability to do that. And I'm thrilled taking Marcelo Meyer at four. All right. And Ben will pick five for the Orioles. I wish there was a college hitter who I could feel really good about taking here. And probably the, the Orioles probably do too. Just <laughs> looking at what they did in the draft last year. Um, I don't think Sal Freelich will go in a top in the top five in the draft, but right now I would take him there. He's going to be my pick. I think at some point by by draft day, somebody will step up and and put themselves into that group. But but I do like I do like Freelich. I think if the draft is today, he goes in the top. 10 picks. I, I think he will go in the top 10 picks. He's a super twitchy athletic center fielder uh, who has, you know, who could play some, some infield too, if, if needed uh, well above average runner, high contact bat. I'm not sure how much power he's, he's going to have, but he, he does make a lot of contact. He can play a premium position. He's, he's an excellent athlete and, and runner a, a nice guy to put at the the top of the lineup table setter type guy and, and play a premium position too all right so you're locking in frelick sal frelick to the orioles that means i'm picking number six for the diamondbacks uh this one is a little tougher for me we're kind of getting into the tier where you can go a number of different directions there are a couple of college hitters i'm thinking about um there are a trio of college arms i'm thinking about and there are also a few prep middle of the diamond players um, I'm torn between Adrian Del Castillo the Miami catcher who I think is probably the best pure hitter in the college class and a college arm who's performed like a Ty Madden or a Gunnar Hoagland but at the end of the day I think I'm going to stick with a bat and I'm going to go with Adrian Del Castillo to the Diamondbacks I I think his track record of hitting the past two years um, really gives teams a lot of comfort He's not yet started hitting for the power that teams want to see. There are defensive questions. Um, but I think he's a guy who his bat's going to be able to profile at a number of different positions if he can't catch. And I'm never going to say that a, a player definitively can't catch just because of some of the recent guys who have who have come out of the amateur ranks and, and been much better catchers than we thought at the time. Uh, so I feel pretty good about getting a bat like Del Castillo's here at number six. Um, so that's who I'm taking Adrian Del Castillo number six, and then we'll go JJ at seven for the Royals. So with the Royals, I, I kind of like this Royals farm system. It's getting better. Um, if I'm picking for the Royals, I mean, there's a logic to say that I should go kind of another, you know, kind of swing through the fences with a James Wood, you know, or someone like that, you know, and, and get another, potentially impact high school bat, but 
but I, I think I'm more comfortable at this point kind of going back to that productive college pitcher well. And I may go a little bit against our rankings. I'm going to take Gunnar Hogland here. I, I think he will move quickly. I really like the fact that this is kind of one of the best pitchers coming into this year of the college crop, but his stuff's gotten better too. I mean, this is a guy who, if we were talking coming into the season, I'd be saying, I wish he had a little bit more fastball velocity, but I love how he locates. I love he has multiple pitches. I love how he pitches, but I don't have to say that anymore. I mean, this is a guy who will go out there and give you 92 and 93s and 94s a lot, not like once or twice, but like regularly during a start. And that's enough. You know, that means that I don't have to worry about how well his fastball is going to play against, you know, more advanced hitters and all that. So, I mean, he did give up a couple of home runs as I watched the game last week, but a couple of solo shots, that seems to be baseball in 2021. Um, but I, I'm, I'm happy with taking Gunnar Hoglund and saying, here you go. Here's yet another should move quickly arm to a uh, Royals pitching staff that has a slew of those guys. Yep. Royals fans everywhere uh, depressed that yet another college arm coming off the board. And Ben will pick number eight for the Rockies. I'm going to go stay middle of the diamond premium position again, go from the high school ranks and take Khalil Watson shortstop out of North Carolina. Um, one of the better hitters in the class. I, I really like his swing. He's performed well against pretty good pitching. Seems like he has a good approach for his age. Again, I, I like the swing. I like the the hitting ability with him. And then it's premium position at shortstop. He's he's at least a a plus runner. So he's he's not that big. He's about five foot nine. I'm fine with that, as we've talked about before. So I'd see a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of attributes to like with Khalil Watson, a, a good hitter and a, a really well-rounded player and a good athlete at a premium position. Yep, it, it is very unsurprising, Ben, that you've taken a lot of undersized hitterish up the middle players. So I'm just glad that that you're kind of sticking on brand here. So that is Khalil Watson to the Rockies at eight. I'm up for the Angels at number nine. Um, I, I kind of figured that JJ was going Gunnar Hoagland. I feel like in conversations with him, he really does like, uh, Hoagland there. So I'm happy. My guy who I also considered at number six for the Diamondbacks is still on the board. I'm just really excited about Ty Madden, the Texas right-hander. I love the attributes of his pitches. I like the run and the ride on his fastball. I love that he can pair that with a really hard slider. Uh, I feel like it, it'll be a pitch combination that plays really well, kind of the vertical game that we're seeing at the big league level. I think he's got a chance to miss a lot of bats. He's shown a really good changeup in the past, hasn't relied on it a ton so far this season. Uh, I am a little bit hesitant about the control at times. I think he can get a little bit scattered. But when he's locked in, I feel like his upside is pretty tremendous. I love the frame. I really enjoy the arm action. I feel like it's pretty clean, comes from a higher three-quarter slot. Uh, I just feel like it's when he's on and when he's locating, I feel like hitters are really going to have a tough time, righties or lefties. So I'll go Ty Madden at number nine to the Angels. And then JJ, by going first, you'll get one extra pick from all of us and wrap us up at number 10 for the Mets. Okay, so I promise you I have my pick set. But I'm, before I do it, because you guys don't get it, I feel like that 
this is the draft, the way this draft sorted out, this is the pick I wouldn't want to have. I don't, there's guys I like, but this is the pick, how this sorted out. I'm not necessarily enamored with who my choices are at 10. Before I make my pick, and I promise you guys, I'm not going to cheat off of your picks. <laughs> Before I do that, let's start with you, Carlos. Who, do you agree with me or who, is there someone that you would love to have at 10? Um, I, I think kind of in this range, once we get out of the top four, maybe there's a couple guys like Frelick or Del Castillo or even some of the pitchers we mentioned that have maybe solidified themselves at the top of this tier. I feel like the second tier right now is pretty wide open. And I feel like there's going to be a, a lot of different orders that teams will line these guys up depending on who you talk to. So, no, I, I do think that that concern is valid. I'm curious when that actually starts. I would say that it, it probably starts before 10. Um, at this point, maybe that'll change. Uh, that, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I think it'll probably change by the time the draft gets here and, and some of these guys have a chance to, you know, look, look, the college season just started. The high school season for a lot of guys hasn't even started yet. I feel like by the time draft day comes, we're, we're going to have guys where you're going to be, you're going to have more confidence in, <laughs> in, in, in who's going to be available at, uh, at this 10 ish type range. But, okay. So, so we successfully didn't give you here. a single name, so that's good. Well, I don't want JJ that's cheating fine. off my picks. <laughs> but I, I'm going to take James Wood here. Uh, I'm going for, uh, you know, one of, to me, one of the most interesting prospects in this draft class. I, I don't know which outfield spot he ends up in long term. Hey, we've seen O'Neill Cruz playing center field, dabbling with it a little bit, you know, at 6'7. So uh, who's to say that 6'6 James Wood can't play center field? But, I, you know, again, I like that. I like him at this spot. I, I felt like I could also go Henry Davis, obviously, is, is an option around here. Um, you could go kind of that next group of, of pitchers. Sam Bachman's really interesting. I just don't want to take, you know, I, I'm not ready to go that way at 10, I guess would be the way to put it. But uh, I, James Woods is my pick. Okay, so just to go through the order really quickly, we had Pirates at one taking Jack Leiter, then Rangers, Kumar Rocker, Tigers at three, Jordan Lawler, Red Sox at four, Marcelo Meyer, Orioles at five, uh, Sal Frelick, Diamondbacks at six, Adrian Del Castillo, Royals, Gunnar Hoagland, Rockies, Khalil Watson, Angels at nine, Ty Madden, and then Mets at 10, James Wood. Uh, so I don't think there are any crazy picks here. But uh, it's fun to kind of think through and go through the process. Hopefully you guys thought it was entertaining or useful in some capacity as well. Um, but thank you guys. If, if there's ever a team foolish enough to give us your first round pick decisions, that's kind of where we're at as of today. But I think now that we have that tucked away. <laughs> absolutely. Now that we have that tucked away, let's jump into some listener questions. Um, and again, if you guys want to send us any questions, you can on Twitter at future pro pod. Uh, you can also send it to our individual Twitter accounts, which, um, are fairly easy to find if you need to. Um, but Russell Colburn on Instagram asks, who do you like more? If we compare the top line college arms of the 2020 and 2021 draft, seems like rocker and lighter would slot in next to Lacey and potentially Max Meyer with Emerson Hancock, Reed Detmers and Ty Madden at the tier below. Uh, JJ, you actually did this 
experiment with us from the 2019 to 2020 classes. So I'm curious what your initial thoughts are for comparing this year's class to last year's. Do you have any initial, are you leaning any direction initially? Yeah. I, I will say one, I'll start with this class pitching wise is way better than 2018, which or I 2019. feel like I'm still not done. Can, I'm no, I'm, I'm sorry, 2019. Yeah. I'm yep. still not done complaining about the 2019 pitching <laughs> class. But then 2020, I mean, it's tough to get, it's a little tougher to compare to 2020 just because we got kind of cut off. Like, it would be almost like, imagine if Jack Leiter had thrown the no-hitter and then we just stopped the season. You know, that that's kind of where we've been. So it's a little harder to compare. And we haven't even gotten to see, like, Max Meyer, like, do a lot of cool things in pro ball to say, oh, okay, well, you know, Max Meyer, I mean, he's really good kind of know that but I still think though at the top of this group Kumar Rocker is going to be about as accomplished if he keeps doing what he's done so far he's going to be about as accomplished as a college pitcher can be in what effectively is going to be two and a quarter seasons Jack Leiter if he keeps doing what he's doing this year I'm they're still not in that Steven Strasburg class where they check every box, you know, yet, but he's having a Strasburgian type season right now. I, again, it's still early. Maybe he ends up with a two and a half ERA when it's all said and done, but it's kind of hard to fathom. We're now in conference play and the games are going to get tougher for Jack Leiter, but at the same time, I, I don't want people to, to not, you know, kind of wrap your head around the fact that that what Jack Leiter is doing so far, top draft prospects don't do this. They don't come out and basically every start, they're better than you expect them to be. And I don't know in a way that you can say it so far. You know, they don't have a 0.25 ERA this far into the season. So I like this group better at the top. Now, if you want to compare Max Meyer and those guys to Ty Madden or Gunnar Hoglund or Jaden Hill, no, I, I like those guys better, but I think that's slotting after Rocker and Hill. I mean, Rocker and Lighter to me, whichever way you want to go, Lighter, Rocker, Rocker, Lighter, take your pick. Yeah, that seems fair from my opinion. I, I think that there is a little bit of kind of the hype getting ahead of itself here. And I, like you said, I think, it's important to note that neither of these guys have thrown as many innings as the guys we're talking about in last year's case. Although for Rocker, he probably has eclipsed some of what those other guys have already done um, just because he had the 2019 season. Um, but I, I think you probably encapsulated it pretty fair. Um, and we'll know with more clarity once we have a full season, like you said, if we see if they continue to, if they post like this every week, it'll, it'll be pretty, pretty obvious that you would take this group over last year's group at the top. But uh, a next question here from Todd Cunningham on Twitter. Would love more breakout prospects at each level for the minors. Also need Ben to give Anna's Takaria a 2080 grade. So I guess, Ben, we can start with you here. Need you to grade fast food restaurants, which is historically a bad idea. But um, go ahead. Yeah, Anna's we, is, yeah, go ahead. An An Anna's is good. I'll give it. I mean, it it depends what universe are we are we grading it in the, yeah, I I I'd give it a solid 
sixty if if you want to play up to uh, to a seventy. I could see that too. I feel like pretty. you underplayed, like the way you talked about it, underplayed your grade. Seventy is pretty loud. Well, I'm I'm comparing it to some of your other quick quick serve options on the, uh, you know, if we're comparing it to like a Subway or some of these other restaurants that you had initially on your list, I I, I would play it up to a seventy for putting into into that category. But if we're if we're just evaluating it rather relative to other mexican quick serve restaurants i'd say it's a it's a solid six is this like a local boston famed spot or something i'm I'm not familiar with it yeah they have uh they have a few different locations in in the boston area so when you're when you're out here we'll have to hit it up so you can give us give us your your 2080 grade carlos i'll have to add it to the tier list and and update the tweet you know i just know that when i think of uh great you know mexican food i always think of boston you know yeah really yeah same (laughs) that's fair (laughs) yeah i mean it yeah it's geography it's it's also it plays into it too so but as far i mean for breakout prospects i don't know that we have to go through every level but do you guys have any other breakout prospects um at a few different levels the the indians have a bunch of guys who i like at the at the lower levels i mean i think that's that's really the strength of their their farm system right now. Obviously, I like you know Tristan McKenzie and 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 all that, but it's they have so many young, especially young international players at the lower levels. I, I think I think Brian Rocchio, and I, I've probably been using him as an example of a breakout player for for a couple of years now, but he he just keeps trending up. Last year, he was stuck in Venezuela basically all year, so not a ton of new information on him, but. Uh, somebody like him or, or Angel Martinez, uh, a shortstop they signed out of the Dominican Republic from the lower levels, who I, I think is a really, really good player who probably is just as uh, not maybe not as famous as some other guys in that system right now. But I think when those guys actually get on the field this year, those are two guys who I think could be uh, arrow arrow up once they get going. I know JJ really likes Michael Harris uh, with the Braves. Yep. He's a his tool set is very exciting. Overall, I think like again we've said this a million times. And I can't wait till we don't have to say it anymore. It'll be really nice to see him over a full minor league season. But but JJ, do you want to go ahead and talk a little bit about Harris? Yeah, I, I Harris is the guy I got to see. I'm sure you've seen him too. But I, I remember he came up with Rome at the end of 2019. Uh, it was, I saw him in Greensboro the end of the season and the guy kind of took a batting practice where you, we remember we were talking about earlier about guys who you just see and you're like, Oh, and he did that. And it was weird because it's like, it's really like the strength, really like the bat speed, but it's a very rotational swing. Um, you know, let me go to the other end of the spectrum to kind of explain it. Like, like Cody Bellinger kind of has this beautiful massive swing that uses I feel like kind of like the whole body right like you know I kind of would describe Michael Harris's swing if you haven't seen it if you're listening if you haven't seen it it's much more generates his power his bat speed from an ability to fire his trunk and kind of the the twist of his abs his you know the muscles all all in his core generates this incredible power to his rotational to his swing 
but it's a very rotational upper body swing. I would kind of describe it as, and it works. Now, a thing I'd kind of to use the same disclaimer we keep using. What I want to see is, it feels like to me when I've seen him in in the minors, when I watched their spring training games this year, it's an open. He starts with an open stance. It feels like he is begging for a pitcher to try to beat him with a fastball on the inside, and you will not. He will turn that around, and he will punish you for that. But I want to see how well he handles being worked, you know, soft away, fastballs off the plate, then soft away, maybe comes in so far that you can only pull it foul and then go back away. The thing that I saw that was a little encouraging in spring training, and he got a lot of plate appearances in spring training, the thing that was encouraging to me was, he did show that he's strong enough. I'm not going to say he stayed back and drove the ball to the opposite field. It was more of kind of kept the same approach. And he would be, he, but he would hit a ball where he'd be a little late to it, but he was still strong enough that he would be able to drive it to left field, even though I don't think he really stayed on the ball. So I'm kind of fascinated to see how that works over the course of a full season. Because the great thing about a full season is it's, if, if my scouting report is accurate, he's going to stop seeing fastballs on the inner half at some point. And he's, not, he's going to stop seeing even like sliders that are trying to throw in on him. And people are going to work him away. And he's going to show whether he can adjust to that or whether a pull-heavy approach is not going to be able to handle that. And he's going to have to make adjustments to it. But I'm fascinated to see it. And I do think he could be a breakout prospect for, for 21. Awesome. Well, thank you both. Uh, the next question we have is from Cream City Pro on Twitter. Would be curious to know the initial steps in identifying high school prospects for a future draft class and how far in advance that process begins before their actual draft year. Uh, well, for us in, in previous years, it's really started immediately after the actual draft. Uh, and then we go straight out to a lot of the big uh, summer, summer showcase events for the next year's draft class. So that's when the process would start. We're trying to get more aggressive on covering underclass guys for our readers because people always want to know who is next. Um, so I'd say a lot of it is, I mean, the travel ball scene is so pervasive at this point that you can have a good feel for a lot of guys at the top of a class. I think there are a number of teams who do a good job um, really having players on or people on their staff focusing on underglass players so they can get a little bit longer history on those players and have a little bit better idea of where the, where they are entering the summer before their senior year. Um, I don't think teams at this point for the amateur draft, because again, we've talked about it, they don't have infinite resources to throw at even the current year. They're not getting ahead like two years in advance. I think most of the teams a year in advance, they'll probably start bearing down on at least guys at the top end. Um, but for us, yeah, we're trying to get more aggressive in that. And that involves talking with college recruiters who are really seeing these guys when they're in middle school and their freshman year in high school, um, talking to those underclass scouts who are seeing more of these younger players. Uh, it's, it's much trickier because you just don't have as much time with those players. And throughout the summer, their, their events are taking place at the same time that the current year draftees that their events are going on. So it is a challenge, uh, but we're trying to get better and get more aggressive at getting on top of those underclassmen before it's really their draft year. I'd kind of sum it up like that. Well, and that, and that goes back to the conversation we were having 
earlier where, again, I want as much information if I'm a club making decisions on who I'm going to draft, who I'm going to sign, who I'm going to pay millions of dollars to. I, I want as much information and as much history on these guys as possible. Mm-hmm. So that's another reason why I, I think, again, not because I, I like scouts and talk to a lot of scouts. This is just if I'm an owner out of pure competitive advantage, I, I would want to have more scouts so I could also have more personnel who could focus on not necessarily the freshmen and, and sophomores so much, mm-hmm. but focus on on the juniors and, and build more history on them their their junior year, especially this year. And it seems like that may be the case going forward too. Obviously more uncertainty there, but with the draft getting pushed back later into the summer where it's now going to be in in mid-July. The overlap is going to be a real issue. Yeah, you're going to have less time to go out and evaluate players over the summer for the following year. So to me, it's it's just even more of an advantage to have more scouts who can keep track of of all of these players because and the summer stuff is going to the summer showcase stuff for the 2022 players is going to start in in June. It's it's you're going to have to be on those guys, but really as a major league club, you're you need to devote the resources that you have at that point to the upcoming draft that's the one you're that's, picking in a, in a month <laughs> yeah that's a month away and then what i think pg national is like the day after the draft so it, i think mm-hmm. it it really is an advantage to have more scouts to be able to see more players and and make better decisions and and, and also just like again like it's <laughs> I, I think pg national what is is a day after the draft it's just another example of like you just end up you you risk running your your scouts so thin. Yep. Just just as far as their their bandwidth. How how much teams teams talk so much now about oh our 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 performance science and it's so important to get good sleep for our athletes and we want to make sure they're all rested and and their performance is optimized. Okay, I'm I'm on board with that. But if 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 you're having your scouts run all over the country or, or all over their area and they're running on little sleep a lot of the times especially in in the thick of things just do you think cognitively they're going to be at their peak performance to do their jobs too mm-hmm. I, I certainly am not when I'm you know just run down at, at the end of a a long day or 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 in the thick of things myself so again to me it's it's just another reason why I think having more good scouts is an advantage for an organization. I would love to see a team put underclass scouts in every single area. They currently have a scout who basically your underclass scouts are in charge of obviously seeing the guys who are coming up next year and getting early follows in. And those scouts could also help cover the current draft year. If you're in an area that is pretty, like if you had an underclass scout and a typical area scout in the Northeast, it'd be a great year where that underclass scout maybe comes up and helps with current year prospects when you have more players than you typically would in an average draft year. You'd get more coverage and you'd also get an opportunity to really develop 
scouts for you. You could take people and you could let them get reps. They'd have people in their area who've done it before and can kind of help develop them along. I would love to see a team get that crazy. And it, it does seem like it would be something crazy for a team to do with how, how they allocate their scouts at this point. But I think that would be awesome to see a team do something like that. But I know JJ, you had a question earlier. I want to get back to you and make sure you had a chance to air it. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, like, I mean, to me, like, again, this is the top guy in the class, but mm -hmm. Elijah Green, yeah. I feel like, yeah, you know, we have a pretty good idea already of how impressive Elijah Green is. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the guy who we're talking, you know, again, the high, the college size is even easier because when we talk about next year's college guys, we, we're talking about you have years of kind of, you know, track mm -hmm. record with those guys. But, but it's not like Elijah Green hasn't already been seen against top level competition yeah regularly i would say the go ahead i was just gonna say i think probably every year that we've done this the challenge has definitely not been the top player because like you said they they have kind of performed at a level and there are enough chances for them to play up with older uh competition and in, in older classes or at events with usa baseball where there's always a few underclassmen that you generally have a pretty good sense for who the top player is in a class before we really get to their year. Like Brady house didn't come out of nowhere. Pete Crow Armstrong didn't come out of nowhere. Bobby Witt, Bryce Terang, all those guys kind of entered their draft year as the top guy. And we weren't surprised by them because their name had been around just because of what they had done as, as underclass players. So I think the challenge is really having the confidence with the depth of a class that you do with the current year draft class, it really just comes from being able to go out there and see those players and talk to people who have. So the, the top guys, like you said, pretty clear, pretty early on established themselves, or at least in the past few years they have. Whereas internationally, you're trying to keep track of four or five years of players <laughs> at once. I mean, teams. So we're technically, I mean, the July 2nd, 2020 signing period got pushed back. So it started January 15th this year. So that 2020 class, which is still ongoing, teams are, are keeping tabs on guys. They can sign them right now. They're scouting 2020, so they're scouting 2020, the upcoming 2021 class, 22, 23, even some 2024 already because there's no draft there. So, well, that's the other issue is there might actually be an international draft, which would throw everybody's plans uh out of whack but as long as there's no draft teams are trying to actually beat each other to the to the punch to to sign these players and and also just to even if it's not to sign a player just to build history and be able to have a good evaluation on on a player so while well the draft in the united states like you said you you, you have a pretty good sense of who the top guys in in the country are generally, uh, but you're as, as a club, you're really, you know, if you're an area scout this spring or, or a cross checker, a scouting director, you, you're really focused just on for the most part, the 2021 class. And, you know, if you're going to see James Wood at IMG Academy, yeah, you're going to see Elijah green too, right? It's, it, it makes it convenient, but internationally you're, you're keeping track of three, four, even five years worth of players at once. It is a, uh, a tough task, no doubt. Uh, I think our last question comes from Connor Alexander-Williams on Instagram, who asks, 
which college freshman has the best chance to go 1-1 in 2023, Dylan Cruz or Kevin Prada? Um, well, this, this one is going to be a lot easier to answer than maybe you initially thought because only one of those players is in the 2023 class. Kevin Prada is actually draft eligible for 2022. Uh, so to answer you very briefly, I'll just say Cruz. Uh, but let's say they were in the same draft class. Let's say Kevin Parada was not old enough to be eligible next year. I think that becomes a, a pretty interesting conversation. Cruz and Prada were two of my personal favorites in the 2020 high school class. Um, I've talked about Prada plenty. I think Cruz is another guy who I liked very early on and struggled his senior year in the spring, uh, or at least didn't live up to the expectations that scouts had for him. Uh, but both have been off to phenomenal starts in college. I think they've been two of the more impressive freshman hitters. Um, people are starting to get a really good idea of what they're able to do. Uh, I, actually, I want to throw this to you guys and see if you have a, a preference because they were tight in our rankings uh, and I like both of them. So I'm curious what you guys think, maybe with having a little less personal history with them. Go ahead, Ben. <sighs> that's, a, that's, that's a tough one. I think I, I, I probably right now would go with Parada just for the positional value that he has over Dylan Cruz, who's, who's going to be a corner outfielder. I like Dylan Cruz a lot my answer certainly could change by the end of the year or even before that. <laughs> so, but right now I think I'd go with, with Parada with the positional edge that he has. JJ, do you have a, a strong opinion either I way? Think I might go, I might go cruise right now. Mm -hmm. I might go cruise. You know, I, I like the power again. You know, I, I like both of them, but I, I really think cruise has a, a solid shot to be in that, you know, that number one consideration in, in 23. I think it's a it's a good name to be watching, you know, even if we're going to be watching for several years here in college. Yeah, I'm really torn because, like I said, I really like both these players. I think I like the the path of Dylan Cruz swing a little bit more. It might have changed given what they've done in college, but I think I like Kevin Prada's pure bat-to-ball skills more. I think what Ben says about um, Prada's ability to catch or potentially catch at the next level is a good one. Um, so I'm, I'm going to cheat and not choose a player since either, either one of you have chosen each one, Ben, you took Prada, JG took Cruz. I'll, I'll just say it's a tie for me now and what we'll a give chicken. you, give you what a, a terrible this answer. Guy is. Unbelievable. <laughs> I don't want to have to, uh, to put it out there now. I want, I want more time to decide. I want to see them more. I want to see what scouts think of Prada's defense behind the plate. Um, but Cruz's exit velocity numbers have been really impressive early on. So Makes it tough. I'll go Prada, Ben. You pressured me. You pressured me into picking. Hey, someone. I didn't make you Prada. pick. You did. You did because you you made fun of me, and then I felt bad, and I felt like I needed to give the listeners a real answer. So I'll All just right. take Prada. We'll have more making fun of you on this podcast then. <laughs> well, I think those are all of the listener questions. We've gotten through a lot so far today. Um, ben, JJ, do you guys have anything you want to plug that you're working on that listeners should be on the lookout for? either on the site or with this podcast or with your Twitter accounts moving forward. Uh, JJ, I know there's a lot of plane video and analysis of <laughs> airplanes in general on your account. Maybe that'll die down with opening day. Maybe not, probably not. But um, anything from, from you that you want to plug for, for listeners? Well, the thing we got coming up obviously is, is we're working now on the minor league preview, you know, opening day is here for the majors, but that means we're working on the minor league preview. 
So there's going to be a lot of stuff coming out at BaseballAmerica.com over the next couple of weeks over what you can expect for the minors in 2021. Obviously, we've written a lot about it. We had a story up this week about the COVID operations manual for the minors, which it's not going to be a fun experience if this doesn't get relaxed because of hopefully vaccination, improved vaccination rates and, you know, reduced infection rates and all. But if not, um, okay, you're a player, you're on the road, you cannot leave the hotel without permission, pre-approval of what you're going to do from the COVID compliance officer. Okay, so you're stuck in your hotel pretty much, except for outdoor walks and going to pick up food and museums. You are allowed to go to museums and they suggest if you can walk to a golf course, golf is okay because it's outdoors. If you can find one that you can get to safely, you know, don't want to be hopping a taxi to get there if you can, but, but a golf course. Although I don't know exactly how you bring clubs on a, uh, you know, uh, a baseball road trip, it's not particularly easy, but okay. If you're at the hotel, you're not allowed to gather in any public areas, period. Can't go to the gym in the hotel, can't hang out in the lobby, can't do anything like that. If you want to go to another teammate's hotel room, you must get approval, pre-approval from the COVID compliance officer to wander out of your room into someone else's. Sounds like a pretty, um, you know, again, I, I know players are going to be excited to get back on the field and get to play again, but it's going to be pretty rough in a lot of ways. How are you going to work out on the road? Like you, because sometimes I'll just go to private gyms in the area, but not allowed. I mean, especially if you're going to be if you're going to be on the road for, and these are going to be longer series this week, so or this year. So if you're going to be on the road for five days in one town, where, where do you go to push-ups, baby? No, it's going to be at the you're, you're the weight room at the stadium. It will be staggered times for people to get their lifts in and all. So it'll be something for the guys at least. A little something. But it's going to be a pretty uh, solitary existence, it sounds like. Ben, anything that you have to plug? Uh, no, just thanks again to everybody for listening. If you subscribe to the podcast, you'll make sure that'll – help us out and you'll get an alert for every time we have a, a new episode. So appreciate all you guys for listening and, and subscribing and all the kind words and feedback from listeners who are uh, got a lot of, I know you too, Carl has got a lot of kind words from scouts who've been listening to this, this show and front office folks who've been listening to on these long, long car rides that they have. So I uh, appreciate Appreciate everything that uh, everybody's been saying. Yeah, definitely. We, we definitely appreciate that feedback. Uh, if you have been a listener and you have not yet reviewed or rated the podcast and you feel inclined, that would be very helpful on our end. And thank you to all of you who have already um, taken the time to do that. We really, again, appreciate it. Um, but thanks for listening. This has been the sixth episode of the Future Projection Podcast. It's been fun. Um, we'll be back next week with episode seven for JJ, for Ben. I'm Carlos. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.